Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'm pleased to have on the show Dr. Sean R. Roberts to talk about his book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. Dr. Sean R. Roberts is an Associate Professor in the Practice of International Affairs and the Director of International Development Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. He's done extensive research on the Uyghur people in the People's Republic of China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, as well as in Central Asia and Turkey. He's also worked extensively in international development. He first visited Central Asia as a high school exchange student and then returned a few years later to do field work for his dissertation. But I shall let him tell you a little bit more about that if you would like to. Today we're here to talk about his latest book published last year by Princeton University Press. It is The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Now, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to write The War on the Uyghurs, China's internal campaign against a Muslim minority? Yeah, I, um, well, I I had set about um, to write a book about how the global war on terror had impacted Uyghurs. Um, This had been issue that have been of interest to me since 2002 when the U.S. recognized uh, an otherwise unknown group um, in Afghanistan, a group of Uyghurs, as a terrorist organization. And I'd been following it ever since then. Um, I'd written a couple things about it, um, and I decided that I should set about writing a book about it. Um, However, the situation for the Uyghurs inside China changed dramatically um, as I started writing the book. So it inevitably also became very much about how the present situation has come about. Right. Um, And so then, given the present situation, what do we know about what's been happening in the Uyghur homeland during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, we haven't gotten a lot of information directly out of the region. Uh, One of the things that's happened is uh, in the run-up to the pandemic, there had been actually quite quite a few uh, very good international journalists uh, who were covering this issue, and they would be able to at least get out to uh, the Xinjiang region and uh, poke around a bit. Um, however, since uh, the pandemic, the region has been mostly cut off. Uh, we do get periodically information from essentially government sources about what's happening. Um, and I think, you know, to characterize what's been happening since the pandemic started, I would say that um, the, the kind of policies that predated the pandemic have been increasingly consolidated. And we what we see is um, also a transition to um, uh, 
a coerced labor scheme in the region that um, has uh, displaced uh, scores in you know thousands of Uyghurs um, from from their um, kind of uh, home villages and so on. And um, but you know really that this this crisis has been going on since. Uh, 2017, so it definitely predates the um, the pandemic. Right, that's really interesting. Um, so, given this sort of context that you know the region is cut off, and I read in your book also that you've been blacklisted by the PRC, um, I just want to find out how you actually came to do the research because it was quite interesting. Um, well, so um, I've been, uh, you know. I've, I've been studying uh, Uyghurs for almost 30 years. Um, and one of the things I found is that uh, wherever Uyghurs move, they set up their own communities. Um, so it's, it's actually, uh, you know, I'm an anthropologist by training and um, I find it very easy to work in Uyghur communities because um, for one, they're interested in the world hearing their story and also, um, you know, they have very tight-knit communities that are easy to, to, to locate. So, um, you know, I, I initially, when I was writing my dissertation, I was uh, mostly doing my, my field research in Kazakhstan across the border. And I would occasionally, uh, you know, like once or twice a year, go over to the Chinese side of the border for about a month and travel around but I would never interview people inside China because even at that time, which was in the um, uh, mid to late nineties, it was dangerous to interview people inside China um, because it, it, the authorities could get a hold of the recordings and people could suffer serious consequences for that. Um, however, there were lots of people going back and forth across the border and I was able to interview a lot of, Uyghurs um, who were from China, um, were Chinese citizens, and uh, were spending time in Central Asia, mostly doing trading, visiting relatives, and so on. Um, that, that community has been largely cut off since the late 1990s. And increasingly, when Uyghurs are able to leave the country, they try to go to Turkey, which has thus far kind of had a... Um, a track record of not extraditing Uyghurs back to China um, and, and generally um, welcoming them, um, giving them at least, uh, if not citizenship, you know, residential permits and so on. So a lot of the research I did um, around this book, you know, it, 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 it gathers information that I've been collecting for years um, but some of the more recent um, material that I gathered uh, was through interviews uh, in Turkey. And I think, yeah, the, the information in the book is really detailed and it's obvious as, you know, you've collected extensively um, all this sort of data and interviews and it's, it's super fascinating. I think that's, you know, something really interesting about it. Um, so then I guess just taking a step back, can you tell me who the Uyghur people are? Yeah, the, the Uyghur people um, are a um, Central Asian people. Uh, they speak a Turkic language. 
um, they their homeland essentially that they identify as their homeland is the um, northwest part of China that's uh, presently called the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. But uh, they really have much more in common culturally um, and um, in other respects historically with the people of Central Asia. So their language, for example, is mutually intelligible with the Uzbek language, um, and they share a lot of the same cultural traditions. And um, it's in in the modern period, in, in particular, um, in the in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, um, it starts to become uh, much more uh, closely associated with modern China. But even at that time, there's a lot of influence from Central Asia, and you have um, a lot of uh, influence from the Soviet Union, in fact, um, in, the, in the early to mid-20th century. Uh, and it's really only after um, the Chinese Revolution and, and the Chinese Communist Party coming to power that um, the area is decisively kind of um, controlled inside um, the Chinese state. Right. And so I guess this is a good point to talk about. Um, you wrote one of the first chapters in the book was on colonialism, the period you described from 1759 to 2001. And in that part, you write that modern China's relationship with the Uyghurs and their homeland has always been and continues to be one best characterised as colonial. Can you give a bit of an overview of the colonialising process of the Uyghur region in this period between 19, 1759 up until 2000? Yeah, I mean, this it, it, it's interesting. I've found that since I've written the book, um, people are more freely accepting of this concept. But for a long time, um, I think it, it, it's true throughout the um, social sciences and in um, history as well. Colonialism has always been associated with uh, European empires that colonize non-European lands. Um, however, you really see in a lot of instances elsewhere in the world, very similar processes. And um, I think, you know, one of the things that's kind of testimony to this is that um, since the uh, 2007 UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, we see that Indigenous people, who are essentially seen as the victims of colonialism, um, have included uh, people from all over the world. Um, and, you know, China is, is no exception, although China um, does not recognize that uh, it ever colonized other parts of um, its present territory. In fact, it, it's quite adamant, the Chinese government's quite adamant at saying that this area had always been part of China. Um, but if you look at the history, the, the region had been very much a crossroads of empires. Um, you know, there had been some empires that were founded in the region throughout history. And, um, you know, there, at occasion there was, were, were empires centered in China and other occasions they were centered in Iran and so on. Um, but in the 18th, mid 18th century, um, the Qing empire, which is the last, uh, of the Chinese empires, 
um, although it was in, in effect uh, run by uh, Manchus um, who had conquered China. Um, they conquered this region and uh, for about a hundred years ruled over it, but really more as kind of a dependency uh, is what one historian has called it. It was very loosely ruled over. It was it, They allowed essentially the the local elites to run uh, everyday life, and um, they would take tribute from the region. And they also put in, um, you know, troops and so on to secure the border and ensure that there there were not um, uh, any kinds of expeditions uh, coming from the West to uh, invade China. Um and then in the 1860s, there's a major rebellion in the area that uh, essentially kicks the Qing Empire out. And um, they kind of, a, I think they, they had somewhat of a ambiguous relationship with this region anyways. There had been debates about whether it was too expensive to maintain as part of the empire. Um, it was essentially kind of a, uh, a losing proposition for them. But um, they come back in the 1880s to retake the region. And at that time, um, they really try to make it more solidly a part of the empire, a part of what is emerging as uh, modern China. Um, and part of that effort also includes really the first attempts at assimilating the local population to uh, Chinese culture and, you know, in particular kind of uh, to uh, Confucian culture and Chinese language. Um, and that takes place, you know, from the 1880s until the fall of the empire in 1911. And um, during this time, the, the region um, still continues to uh, the, the local population st still continues to interact with Muslims across the borders in Central Asia, elsewhere. Uh, it continues to have, um, you know, kind of its, its own traditions. And, and in fact, the, the kind of assimilation mission um, mostly fails. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it is at this time that the empire uh, officially names the region as the uh, as Xinjiang, which uh, literally means new frontier, which gives you an idea of kind of the tenuous relationship this region uh, had to China historically. Um, and then during the uh, Republican era, which is, you know, after the fall of this, the last empire in China, there's a period uh, where um, China is kind of emerging as a uh, nation state. And it inherits the borders of the Qing Empire, but um, in Xinjiang in particular, it it only really loosely controls the region. And there's um, Han governors who are kind of running it uh, as their own um, kind of principality, um, you know. And and they're all very different in their orientation. You know, some of them are highly corrupt and um, are just interested in, in lining their pockets. Uh, other ones um, are somewhat interested in integrating this region into China proper. 
Um, one of them is actually uh, most interested in integrating the region into the Soviet Union and allegedly even suggested that to um, Stalin at one point. Um, so, you know, all this time up to the founding of the People's Republic of China, the region has this very kind of loose relationship with, uh, with China itself. Um, and that may be one of the reasons that the state today is so adamant about trying to say it's always been part of China, that they, they, they feel that to a certain extent, there's a, I, I think, a sense of um, insecurity about that, hmm. that claim. And that's really interesting. So there was a high point in Uyghur self-determination prior to 1949 that you write about as well. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, there, there actually are two instances during the Republican period after between 1911 and uh, 1949 where Uyghurs succeeded in establishing uh, kind of uh, regional independent states. Uh, the first one happens in the south of the region and is really um, uh, an indigenously um, created movement. Uh, it has a lot of different influences, and it calls itself the Eastern Turkestan Republic, um, recognizing that uh, the people of the region um, don't only include Uyghurs, but other Turkic people as well. Um, and, um, that one gets quickly, um, dismantled by, um, the warlord who was controlling the region at the time. Um, so it lasts from 1933 to 1934, but the second, um, state also calls itself the, uh, Eastern Turkestan Republic. And it's, uh, established in 1944 with assistance from the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union eventually establishes a treaty with, um, but between the we, you know, the Soviet Union never openly uh, said that it supported this rebellion, but um, you know, it's it's been documented since that it certainly did. But it, it when China accuses it of supporting this rebellion, um, the Soviet Union says, "Well, we'll broker a treaty between." Uh, the the local rebels and um, the Chinese state, which they do, and there's um, there's actually for a, a short period a coalition government um, that includes uh, the people from uh, the Soviet back state, you know, all local populations, Uyghurs and other local Muslim peoples, um, and uh, the Guomindang, but the Guomindang also employs uh, some Uyghur intellectuals. So there's a, there's a moment in, in the, you know, between 1946 uh, like and um, 49, where you really have Uyghurs uh, controlling their more, their destiny more than any time in the modern period. And I, I often think of that period as, you know, um, a period, you know, kind of an alternative reality. If, if uh, things had remained like that, would we have a very different situation? Um, you know, would, would you have maybe even the ability um, for uh, this region to, you know, comfortably coexist 
as part of China, but on its own terms. Um, and, you know, unfortunately that doesn't happen. Um, but I, I do see that that moment in history is, um, you know, in, incredibly important for, for the Uyghurs and, uh, you know, their desire to have more agency over uh, the land that they see as their homeland. And then so there are a few turning points that followed that. Firstly, in 1949, with the founding of the People's Republic of China and then the Cultural Revolution. Um, and then there was a shift as well between 1980 up to 2001. Can you talk a little bit about these just to contextualise, especially what's been going on in the last 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I uh, so one of the things I do in the book um, and I think this was very much influenced by um, um, my research in into um, development uh, and indigenous peoples. Um, you know, I, one of the things I do is I try to look at what would have been um, situations where uh, you would have had, um, you know, a, a very kind of amicable, amicable. Uh, cohabitation of the indigenous population and um, the Chinese government, you know, because in, in a lot of other instances where you have indigenous peoples, um, there's different forms of kind of limited sovereignty, um, recognition of past wrongs, recognition of their ownership of the land, even if it doesn't necessarily come with, um, complete control, uh, at least partial control. And that, and that's kind of a process you continue to see in a post-colonial situation. Um, and I was kind of looking when I was analyzing the history to see if there were moments in, in the history of this region and its relationship with China, um, where it almost became a post-colonial reality. Um, and I found, you know, several of these moments where, things could have gone in a completely different direction. Um, the initial one is, is right after uh, the Communist Party takes over power in China. Um, one of the things that uh, the, Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party is very influenced by uh, the Soviet Union at this time. Uh, and the Soviets had established kind of a, um, uh, a, a means of of recognizing um, the excesses of Russian colonialism that predated it, and even uh, in, in a way framing the Bolshevik revolution as an anti-colonial revolution. Um, and so, you know, in the Soviet Union, you had these, these uh, Soviet republics that represented uh, different nations um, and, you know, even though uh, they weren't empowered uh, in terms of self-rule, there at least was um, kind of a, uh, a recognition uh, that these people were the native um, peoples of these different regions, that these were nations in themselves, that they had been colonized, um, and that uh, the Soviet Union wanted to um, allow them to um, express their culture and, um, of course, doing so in a way that was um, uh, uh, in concert with Soviet ideology. 
right? Um, and so, you know, China initially looks at this model and adopts it to a certain degree, and and it's and it's partly, I think, out of um, out of necessity because. Uh, you know, in 1949, there's only about 6% of the population in this region that are Han. So um, the majority of the population uh, is from the, um, the local nationalities. And, um, and so uh, initially, the, the Communist Party takes on a lot of the Uyghur intellectuals who had led the second Eastern Turkestan uh, Republic. Um, and brings them on as members of the Chinese Communist Party, gives them uh, positions in the government. And in 1955, they, the, the uh, party actually recognizes this region as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Um, and this, you know, is kind of a nod to this idea that this is um, their land, this is their homeland. Um, but Unlike the Soviet Union, uh, they don't have a stipulation in the Constitution that um, uh, these uh, these autonomous regions could actually secede from China, which the Soviet Union did have for its republics. Um, and and this moment, I think, um, quickly quickly recedes when you have uh, the anti-rightist campaign of late 1950s, which um, in in this region, essentially targets um, Uyghur intellectuals and government um, officials as being nationalists, um, and then you have a break with the Soviet Union, um, and China decides that you know it's going to have its own system that's not modeled on that in the Soviet Union. In fact, uh, feels the Soviet model is inferior, and um, as a result, I would say by the end of the 50s, that idea of any sort of um, even partial self-governance in the region uh, disappears. Um, and uh, the next period is right after the Cultural Revolution. And right after the Cultural Revolution in the 1980s, um, China is undergoing all kinds of experiments with liberal ideas um, you know, in terms of the economy, in terms of uh, opening up space um, to uh, discuss things, uh, uh, even discussions of whether uh, its political system should be liberalized. Um, and during this period, there's a real, um, a real kind of cultural renaissance in the Uyghur region because um, the, the, the local people are able to, um, re explore religion again. Uh, mosques are reopened. Um, uh, former, um, religious scholars are allowed out of jail. And the same thing happens in the intellectual realm. You have, uh, former professors who'd been jailed as nationalists are allowed out of jail and they begin publishing again. Um, there's a, a really robust Uyghur publishing um, community at this time. And you have, um, although you don't have kind of, uh, uh, kind of standard histories, you have uh, a lot of historical novels that allow them to even explore these periods where they had um, uh, independent proto-states in the early 20th century. 
Um, and that starts to come apart, um, you know, already I'd say in 1987, as you start to have hardliners uh, kind of putting a cap on some of the liberalism uh, that the party was experimenting with. But then definitely after um, the uh, Tiananmen Square incidents, um, you know, when, when the uh, student uh, democracy protesters are put down uh, violently, and after that, you really see a shrinking of the, the political space everywhere in China, but in particular in this region. And then, the, and then finally, I think the one additional point that's really important to make is um, at the, right around the same time, you know, in 1991, the Soviet Union falls and the Chinese Communist Party essentially identifies the failure of the Soviet Union and its fall with um, its system of ethnic autonomy um, and decides that uh, now China really needs to make sure that there are not, um, there are not movements to have independent states in its, in, in its uh, autonomous regions in, in Xinjiang and also in Tibet and even in Mongolia. Mm. And then so in the early 2000s, you write about how the PRC harnessed then the global war against terror to classify the Uyghur people as a terrorist threat. So how were the Uyghurs then branded this so-called terrorist threat in this period? Well, you know, so um, I think it's it's instructive to look at it um, from the 1990s, from this period mm-hmm. where the party is is very concerned about um, self-determination movements. Um, and, you know, and this was this was understandable because, uh, as I said, the Uyghur people are very closely related to the Central Asian people. And Uyghurs were looking across the border and seeing that in Central Asia, um, people had their own independent states. And, uh, you know, at that time when I was traveling a lot in the region, I would talk to Uyghurs and they would mention, you know, why don't we have uh, our own state? And maybe we will someday. Um, and um, that became kind of an obsessive um, target for for the government that was searching out for what they called at that time separatists. Uh, so they were looking for any signs of a movement for independence. Um, and even though you had a lot of people who uh, expressed kind of the sediment that I mentioned, you know, it would be nice to have our own state. Um, and people, you know, subsequently using kind of everyday forms of resistance to, um, to make that point, but you did not really have any sort of consolidated independence movement, let alone one um, that had access to um, arms to, uh, um, to kind of launch any sort of threat to the state. And it's um, uh, it's territorial integrity. So I think when 9-11 happens, uh, the Chinese government looks at the situation and they it, it essentially says, well, it, you know, this would be a lot easier um, to market, essentially, glo- you know, globally, because there was a lot of criticism of their mistreatment of Uyghurs in the 90s, um, you know, if if we're able to link um, 
this idea of Uyghur separatists to um, uh, international terrorism. Uh, and so they, they put out some documents um, initially uh, that are, are kind of um, fantastical talking about uh, how virtually every Uyghur diaspora uh, organization um, that's doing advocacy abroad is actually linked with Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And there's not much, there's not much international appetite for this narrative. Um, you know, I think that uh, the United States, to a certain degree, uh, in their meetings with um, the Chinese government kind of pushes back on it and says, well, no, you know, the problem in Xinjiang is not about terrorism. It's about human rights and um, religious freedom and, and these kinds of issues. Um, but then suddenly the United States completely changes its tune and in the summer of 2002 actually recognizes one Uyghur group um, allegedly in Afghanistan as um, a terrorist organization. And they also helped the Chinese government uh, get that organization recognized on the UN uh, Security Council consolidated list. Um, and, and I think that that was a very um, important thing uh, in terms of well, it, it, it had long-lasting influence on Uyghurs, you know, I mean, and, and it wasn't that it, it changed policies inside China t- towards Uyghurs uh, immediately uh, in a way that was um, perceptible, but it set the, um, set the precedent to do so uh, going forward. That's a really interesting point. Um and one thing you do talk about in the book, just to sort of pick apart what you've just said, is this definition of terrorism. And there seems to be a different conception in Western liberal democracies of terrorism to how it's interpreted in the PRC, if I'm correct in interpreting your work. Can you expand on this a little? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I it, in my book, I have kind of an implicit critique of the war on terror, because um, uh, I felt that having lived through that <laughs> as an adult, <laughs> yeah. the, the kind of dawn of the war on terror, uh, and and you know working with Muslim populations in Central Asia, uh, I realized how it it quickly became this racialized um, campaign against Muslims. Um, but one of the things I didn't realize until I started looking at the issue in more depth for the book was um, the fact that there is no international consensus on what um, constitutes a terrorist or terrorism. And yet, you know, for almost 20 years, the U.S. has been at war with terrorism. Um, and I found this kind of mind boggling that, uh, you know, more people are not um, kind of up in arms about the fact that we're we're at war with something that um, doesn't have uh, an international definition. Um, you know, each country kind of defines it their own way. But, um, you know, one of the reasons there isn't an international definition is that it is a very politicized concept that historically states have used to um, 
brand uh, non-state actors as potentially uh, dangerous, criminalized, and so on. And um, I think that in this case, in in terms of the global war on terror, you know, which which we don't really call it that anymore, but I, I still call it that because I think it hasn't really ever um, ended. Um, you know, it becomes very racialized and focused on Muslims. Um, you know, I remember the, the the early period of the global war on terror. There was discussion about whether groups like the um, uh, IRA uh, should be the the Irish Republican Army, whether they should be classified on this terrorist list. Were they going to be um, one of the groups that this global war on terror was going to be against? Um, And then it became quite clear after not too long that um, this was only reserved for Terrorists or you know non-state actor militant non-state actors who are Muslim, um, and you know I think that that uh, that that has allowed all kinds of countries to um, abuse the the ambiguity in the definition. Um, you know you you can essentially brand any um, Muslim um, group that you are opposed to as a terrorist group and um, can subsequently uh, get away with suspending their, their human rights. Um, and I think that, you know, that is, that's what, what happened eventually to the Uyghur people. Um, you know, and, and I think there's other examples uh, that people can point to of other groups that have undergone similar kind of um uh, manipulation, um, you know, the, the Rohingya, um, different groups, uh, in, in, um, Northern Africa, um, and also, um, even in Muslim majority countries, uh, it became something that they could use to brand their political opposition. Um, and that was the case for some time in, in Central Asia. Um, so I think I think that 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 that's it's a it's a very serious um, issue I think with with our our kind of um, counterterrorism campaigning um, that uh, creates any number of uh, dilemmas I think for for us in terms of human rights um, and I don't think it's it's been something that has been dealt with enough by the, the international community. Um, and we haven't really reckoned with this problem. And I think it still continues to be a problem in, in, in some ways is just kind of festering and getting worse. And so then considering the ongoing and intensification of repression and oppression of the Uyghur people by the PRC government, has there been any evidence of any kind of terrorist threat? Well, so, I mean, it depends on what you call a terrorist threat, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, uh, I mean, I think that um, what, what what I found is I, d- I didn't find any evidence of um, kind of a concerted, organized, um, militant movement. What does happen is that um, by the by 2013, 
um, a lot of the, the because things get increasingly worse for Uyghurs in uh, the second decade of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that has to do with some other things that happen. In particular, um, uh, there was a, a essentially a, um, a race riot that took place in um, the city of Arumshi um, that quickly, uh, you know, escalated into um, violence on both sides, um, Uyghurs going after Han and Han going after Uyghurs. And um, the Uyghurs were essentially blamed for this. And even though it was very evidently had nothing to do with terrorism, uh, the government identified this as um, an act of terrorism. And so as a result, um, things got very, very bad after 2009. Um, And by 2013, the tension in the region um, starts having, it starts turning into um, violent acts that look, and I I think, you know, can be defined as terrorist acts, but they're, they're not necessarily um, having to do anything with Al Qaeda or an organized uh, threat, and and one of the things that helps facilitate this narrative as well is that um, uh, at the same time there is this one um, Uyghur jihadist group um, that you know had very little um, very little capacity to carry out any kind of violence inside China, um, but became a, a very prolific. Uh, maker of videos, and and they were um, continually making videos about any any violent acts that took place in the Uyghur region, and um, essentially congratulating um, the people of the region for standing up to the Chinese and in waging a jihad. Um, and you know, this is it's one of these instances where you know, presumably uh, these people thought they were you know, helping their countrymen, but they were essentially giving just another excuse um, for the government to say that there was a serious terrorist threat. And um, that, uh, and, and, and you start to see as a result by 2013, 14, maybe um, four or five acts of violence that looked to be um, terrorism by my definition, which means that, uh, they're politically motivated, um, premeditated acts of violence with a political goal, um, that attack civilians. And then this provided the justification. Necessarily makes, makes a terrorist threat. Right. And then, so this sort of provided some justification for, um, the so-called People's War on Terror from 2014 to 2016. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, from 2014 under Xi Jinping, what happened in the Uyghur region? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I do think that uh, things got um, much, much worse under Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is something a lot of people are suggesting um, is, is true across the board in China, um, you know, in terms of uh, civil liberties, 
um, and so on, that um, under Xi Jinping, the situation has gotten increasingly dire. Um, and and uh, some of the things that happened, that, that essentially that time period of Xi Jinping coming to power is the same time period that you start seeing some of these acts of violence uh, allegedly carried out by Uyghurs that look like terrorist acts. Um, and there's one in particular in 2014 when Xi Jinping takes his first trip to the region and um, just about when he's going to leave, there's a bomb that goes off at the Urumqi train station. Urumqi is the capital city of the region. And um, that's, that's kind of when he decides we need to have this people's war on terror. Um, and one of the things I found in my research, when I looked at this period in depth, you can kind of see that um, all the things that the state has put in, put in motion since 2017 have their origins during this people's war on terror. Um, the state uh, establishes uh, what they call um, extremification regula- regulations, which basically provide um, a way to uh, uh, categorize what um, what what qualifies as extremist in terms of behavior, right? Um, because this is one of the, uh, another, I think, um, problem in terms of the war on terror, and particularly as it move to a discourse of countering violent extremism is um, often uh, people are not looking at what people have done, but what they think. And that's always a dangerous, dangerous kind of transition when you start getting into thought police. And um, the, these regulations lay out essentially any kind of um, uh, encouraging people to adopt a religion uh, refusing the hand in marriage uh, to somebody of a different religion or ethnic group, wearing certain clothes. These are all considered signs of extremism. And, and these, these things are all the things that uh, eventually they start interning people for. Um, but already in 2014, you start to see um, this impl- Im- implemented to a certain extent in certain places, in particular in the South, the Uyghur majority South. Um, and we also see the state experimenting with different forms of re-education. Um, and, you know, they, they, they believe that first they have to identify the extremists and then re-educate them so they're not extremists uh, and they're loyal citizens and they understand um, their, their wrong ways. Um, and... Um, you know, all of these things. Oh, and, and finally, the other piece of the puzzle that's put in, uh, put into motion after 2014 is the mass electronic surveillance. And in particular, the creation of a database that allows the state and security organs to essentially collate, uh, you know, a digital file on any given Uyghur individual that um, can easily be rated as loyal or disloyal or neutral. Um, And these are all the things that have been used since 2017 to essentially target the entire Uyghur population. It sounds like some kind of dystopian future. Um, 
it almost, you know, sounds made up. It's quite frightening. So then I'm glad you you came to this point. So you write in 2017 that prior to 2017, Uyghurs were subjected to frequent violations of their human rights, faced discrimination on the basis of their identity, and were pressured to assimilate and restricted in their ability to practice their religion. But their identity did not com- face complete eradication. This situation changed over the course of 2017 as the PRC began a systematic and violent dismantling of Uyghur culture and indemnity that can be unequivocally described as cultural genocide. So can you talk about what happened in 2017 um, that caused this shift and what are some of the key ways that cultural genocide has been perpetrated? Yeah, I think it's it's unclear why the shift happens. I, Mm -hmm. I, I, I look at the, um, I look at that period in depth to try to get a sense, you know, there's a couple kind of minor violent incidents that take place. Um, but I, I kind of came to the conclusion, um, that since the government was putting these thing, these kind of the pieces of the puzzle in place already in 2014, uh, that at some time between 2014 and 2017, they decided that, you know, this was going to have to be um, an all-of-population campaign. Um, and Xi Jinping puts um, uh, a person in control of the Uyghur region as the head of the uh, regional party, um, Chen Kuangguo, who had been the party secretary in Tibet prior to this. And he had already there um, implemented a lot of security measures, including um, these kind of uh, checkpoint slash um, small police stations um, dotting the entire urban landscape, in particular in urban places um, that were called convenient police stations. Um, and so he puts those in, in place, but, um, obviously, you know, somebody puts forward the order to, um, build these mass internment camps. Um, and I, I, I think we don't really know yet, you know, who exactly decides to do that, but it, you, you'd have to imagine that it comes from the central government because it's, it's a massive undertaking and expensive undertaking. And they, they build um, these mass internment camps throughout uh, the Uyghur region, and then people start disappearing. Um, and that's when, you know, people from outside started to notice that something very wrong was, was going on in this region. Um, you know, myself knowing Uyghurs in the U.S., um, and elsewhere who are telling me they, they can't talk to their family members anymore. They don't know what happened to them. Um, and also there's a couple of researchers who start uncovering um, the procurement uh, documents for these internment camps. There's another, uh, actually a law student in Canada who, who is, is from China, um, starts just using Google Earth and starts um, noticing all of these new internment centers and maps them out. Um, and there's people in Kazakhstan who are starting to, to uh, encounter people who've entered into these camps and um, are, are able to give eyewitness testimony. Um, but I think that what's, what I try to note in my book, and I think it's an important point, 
is even though these internment camps, you know, for a whole host of reasons are the most headline grabbing part of this. I mean, they're, they're very evocative of, you know, genocides past and so on. Um, they're only part of what's happening. Um, and, and they're a central part of it. The, the, the other central part is the mass surveillance system um, because those two things taken together um, ensure that everybody outside of internment camps um, or prisons, because at the same time we have this massive spike in uh, people arrested and sent to actual prisons in 2017. Um, everybody outside these penal institutions who is being constantly surveilled must be um, complicit in everything the state is doing or otherwise face either imprisonment or internment. Um, and so you, you get this situation where um, any sort of resistance, um, soft or hard, is almost impossible. Um, and the state um, starts basically transforming this region. Um, it starts, uh, you know, uh, displacing Uyghurs from traditional villages, um, developing these villages into two different things. Um, uh, remaking the landscape in terms of um, mosques, uh, changing their their appearance, repurposing them, closing them, destroying them, uh, destroying pilgrimage sites, um, and uh, accompanying that with a strong um, campaign to essentially assimilate Uyghurs to Chinese culture. Um, and, um, you know, including making sure everybody speaks Chinese, making, um, sure that children, um, are only able to speak Chinese from kindergarten on in school. Um, a lot of parent separation from children because of the internment and imprisonment. Um, and also this, this coerced labor system that, um, brings a lot of other, um, parents out of the picture because they're sent to residential factories and are part of um, work groups that are all over China. And in all of this, to me, you know, um, is much more reminiscent of the fate of indigenous peoples in uh, settler colonies like the United States, Canada, Australia, and so on. Um, you know, even some of the methods, uh, boarding schools, um, uh, different different uh, attempts to essentially break the solidarity of um, the indigenous peoples to make sure that they can't resist um, the development and settlement of this region. Um, and and uh, as a result, you know, I, I really believe that the, the intent of the Chinese government all along has been to develop this region. Um, into uh, an integral part of China. And in that equation, the indigenous people are at best superfluous and at worst uh, an obstacle that must be removed. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. And I think that the, the terrorism narrative has served as a, a convenient um, kind of justification for all that, but it's not um, really what it's, what, it's not 
the core reason for what is happening. Right. And so in this context, you describe the ongoing resistance against the erasure and displacement of Uyghur culture as futile, both from a cultural and a human aspect. Can you expand a little bit what you mean by this, please? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for for Uyghurs outside of China, it's not futile. Um, mm. But inside China, it becomes futile because um, uh, the state has put in um, all the apparatuses to uh, severely punish anyone um, who does not comply with all, all of their wishes. Um, you know, whether that means indefinite um, and extra legal internment, uh, whether that means, um, you know, essentially imprisonment on uh, very um, questionable charges about somebody being an extremist, um, or whether that is um, being sent to work units, you know, re- in residential factories um, and isolated from the rest of the the factory's population, and at the same time continuing uh, to be um, given re-education. So it'll be interesting. I mean, it'll be interesting to know what what kinds. I mean, I, I think that there's there has to be some resistance happening. Um, but what that looks like, uh, I, we may not know, you know, um, uh, for several years until, you know, some people get out of the region who've, who've undergone all of these things. You know, we have right now some, uh, people who, um, have provided testimony or survivors, but, um, there's very few Uyghurs getting out now. Um, and the point is that, you know, even if you, you can resist, but you will immediately be destroyed if you do. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, in conclusion, you asked three critical questions um, as to the future trajectory for the Uyghur peoples and their homeland. Now, I'm hoping you can answer these now. Firstly, I want to know what you see as a logical conclusion of the cultural genocide against the Uyghur people. And I'm also interested to know in this context what you think the Biden administration should do. Mm-hmm. Um, the second question relates to you say that the global war on terror has never really been about terrorism. It's always been about finding a justification for the pursuance of other interests. So what are the implications of this and what do you describe as the tragedy in relation to the global war on terror? And finally, um, what can be done to stop the Uyghur crisis from getting any worse? Oh, some big questions there. All right. So um, to start with um, uh, what is the logical conclusion of um, the cultural genocide? Um, you know, I, I paint a very bleak picture in the book, which I, you know, uh, I hope is not um, uh, inevitable, but I paint it uh, as, as a means of saying, you know, if, if nothing is done to, to stop this, this is where it's headed, you know? So, I mean, essentially um, breaking the will of these people, um, significantly depopulating them. Uh, You know, since I wrote the book, there's been a lot of evidence coming out about uh, sterilization campaigns and even the official uh, state statistics shows that there's been like a 50% um, 
reduction in births among um, in in the region actually since 2017, and assuming that um, the sterilization is only targeting uh, the local Muslim populations and not the Han, that would mean an even more significant reduction in births among Uyghurs and, and other indigenous Muslim peoples. Um, and, um, essentially, you know, um, uh, marginalizing them on the margins of society, which is what you see, uh, has been done to so many other indigenous peoples around the world. Um, the native Americans, uh, the Aboriginal peoples of, of Australia and so on. Um, and, you know, I, I think it doesn't end in the complete destruction of the peoples. It just, it's, it's more the pacification. Um, and you know, the, the peoples can be reborn subsequently, but, but they suffer incredible trauma that, um, that makes that rebirth very difficult. Um, and, in terms of what can be done, um, and in particular what the Biden administration should do, um, I feel that this is a problem that can only be resolved by um, the Chinese government, right? You know, I mean, the, the, there's nobody, nobody's going to go to war over over this issue with China because nobody wants to go to war with China. Um, nobody wants another world war. Um and so the question is, how can you get the Chinese government to change its behavior? And um, I think I think that the only way you can really do that is um, through economic um, pain. And the, and the truth of it is that for the rest of the world to exert that kind of pain on China, it's also going to be painful for the rest of the world because our global economy were so intertwined that um, you know, uh, there, it's going to be um, a burden for uh, American consumers and American um, producers um, to essentially uh, cut away from their reliance on China, um, and and this and this is all the more problematic because what we see with the coerced labor programs is it's been spread throughout the country, and so people have documented that factories that provide um, uh, parts, you know, they're parts of um, supply chains to major corporations are um, entangled in this, in this coerced labor. And um, I see that right now, I think one of the most positive developments is that in, in the U S Congress, there is an act called the, uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that would um, would uh, basically stipulate that any products that have any um, Uyghur coerced labor in their supply chain will not be allowed into the United States. And they put the burden on the corporations to figure that out and to prove that this is the case. Um, I mean, it would it would be a, it would be a difficult law to um, to enforce, but um, but it could be done, and it could, I think, um, really show uh, a lot of uh, important people in China that what what uh, the the state is doing to the Uyghur people um, is not in their best interest. Um, 
uh, I think that, you know, Xi Jinping can't turn around and, um, and apologize to the Uyghurs because he's already uh, essentially um, uh, gone all in on this, this strategy and this policy. Um, I, I would see, you know, it, it being about um, powerful people who could perhaps um, pressure him to st- step down and then, you know, he and his government could be blamed for this. And then there might be an opportunity for reconciliation. Um, but, you know, that's kind of beyond my my capacities. I'm, I'm not a political scientist to know really, you know, how that's going to happen. But I think that the, the economic pressures are, are really the thing that could change the situation. Um, and my hope is that there's still enough um, interested uh, economic um, forces in China that would um, put pressure on the state to change course if they realized it was hurting them economically. Um, and then in terms of um, the war on terror, you know, I, I, I feel like there, there needs to be an end to the war on terror. Um, now, <laughs> in the United States, this is problematic because as long as there's a war on terror, uh, the executive has this um, very fungible power to um, use the armed forces in different contexts as long as it's, you know, construed as seeking out terrorists. Um, but, uh, I think it, I think it's important. Um, and, and I, I do feel like, you know, it, it's perhaps an opportunity, um, to press the international community to come to a consensus at the UN as to what defines terrorism and, and then being able to, you know, kind of loosen the moorings of that to um, Islam, which is something that's caused this global Islamophobia. I mean, it, you don't have to look very far if you're in the United States, because really the terrorist threat in the United States right now um, comes from white supremacist movements, not from um, uh, Islamic jihadists. Um, you know, so I think I think having a clear idea of what and, and for me, you know, the real defining aspect of, of terrorism is not um, the ideas you hold, but it is, um, you know, killing innocent civilians uh, deliberately with a political aim to, to send a message. And I think that, that that's something that's worthwhile stopping. Yeah, of course. And I think that just ties in. Um, you conclude with a rather ominous phrasing. You write, first they came for the Uyghurs. So can you explain what you mean? Um, I mean, beyond the complete destruction of Uyghur identity, culture, religion, humanity, is there a concern for the global community of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, the point I wanted to make at the end Mm -hmm. um, by saying that was I think that in this this, uh, crisis, everybody should see... um, foreboding um, cautionary tales about things that they could face in the future. Um, Part of that is um, 
I think the the mass surveillance. This is something that is already here. Um, it's something that um, any state uh, can employ um, for um, you know nefarious purposes um, to essentially oppress anybody they want to oppress. Um, I think the technology is all there in every country, pretty much, and. And this is an instance where uh, the Chinese government is selling their hardware for this. You know, I mean, some of the uh, electronic surveillance equipment essentially racially profiles Uyghurs with with facial recognition and voice recognition, so they can immediately target um, who is and is not a Uyghur. Um, but also, I think there's there's other issues. I mean. Uh, this the issue of rising um, populism in the world that is very focused on nativist nationalism is something that you can see in this instance. I mean, you know, we've seen it. Um, it's it's happening all over the world right now, um, and you know where politicians are essentially. Um, using outsiders, others as scapegoats um, to fuel their kind of nationalist agenda. And I think this is a, a very extreme version of it, but, you know, it concerns me that it could be, it could set a precedent for, for seeing that happen elsewhere. And then finally, you know, at, at a time where we're trying to come to grips with um, the legacy of colonialism and the destruction it's done to indigenous peoples, this sets a precedent for um, essentially ignoring the rights of indigenous people and going back to a kind of 19th century idea of, you know, uh, progress justifies any kind of destruction. Um, so I, I see that, I, I see in the Uyghur crisis, you know, um, a kind of mirror that um, people looking at it may see different things, um, but they're all things that are extremely um, foreboding and worrisome about where the future of the world is headed. Yeah, it's extremely worrying, worrying indeed. Um, now, Sean, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, can you tell me what you're working on now? Um, so right now um, I'm working doing some stuff around um, uh, what's happening to Uyghurs right now. I've, I've committed yeah. to writing a bunch of articles uh, about that from different perspectives. And um, I've been doing a lot of uh, speaking on it because I feel it's really important. Um, you know, and, and I've been doing uh, speeches about this in different places, you know, um, different universities, different organizations, and so on since since 2018 at least. And it still surprises me that every time I do, um, there's, there's people there who don't realize the scale of what's happening. So obviously the, the awareness raising, you know, continues to be important. Um, and then finally, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a, a project that, um, deals with the issues around the war on terror and, and looking at kind of a comparative uh, frame of three different groups that I think um, have um, suffered significantly from the war on terror um, and um, 
needlessly so. And, and, you know, that's the Uyghurs, the Chechens, um, and uh, the Uzbeks who are a very different case, but they're all, they're all uh, cases in Eurasia, which where I, where I have, you know, um, a degree of local knowledge that I think I can look at the realities and myths about these different terrorist cases and, and uh, how it's been used um, to essentially reassert state power against um, different types of opponents. Yeah, actually, um, in preparation for this interview, I did a quick Google on you. Um, and anyone listening at home, if you do Google Sean R. Roberts, you will come up with loads of articles he's written. Um, yeah, there's so much you can find out about. So, yeah, you've definitely been very busy and I look forward to hearing more about some of your work. Um, so just in conclusion, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking to Dr. Sean R. Roberts about his latest book, the War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. This is New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Sean, thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me.